Saturday and happy holidays. It's December 23rd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are here to spread the holiday cheer festivities, maybe even a little eggnog, Michael. Who knows? A little eggnog with a little something spiked, maybe, just to take the edge off everything. What do we have, Michael? We've got a great episode here today. This week, we've got Linda Wells, who's going to be here to tell us what we need to know about looking great and healthy in 2024 and an interesting new trend that I want to hear all about. Then, Josh Carter. We'll have a look back specifically at 1973 and how a legendary film director and a down-on-his-luck actor reinvented the detective film noir and in the process created a classic. And finally, John von Southern will join us from Paris with his report on a flamboyant Frenchman who rose to fame for restoring lost film classics, but now finds himself on trial for manslaughter. Hmm. Why not start with Linda Wells? Yeah, that's always a good idea. Linda's peppy, cheery. She's got exciting things to discuss. Linda's the editor of Airmail Look and the beauty and wellness columnist for Airmail. She was also the founding editor of Allure, a position she held for 25 years, and she knows everything about everything. As Graydon recently said, she is the Walter Cronkite of the beauty and wellness universe. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Ashley and Michael. So Linda, we've read so much about Bradley Cooper's nose in Maestro, but according to your great story, that is just the beginning of this particular cultural moment. Where do we find ourselves? Well, we find ourselves in a place where we're focusing on noses, as we tend to do, but in the both appreciation and love of the strong nose with character. And we've got Barbara Streisand's memoir that starts on page one with descriptions of her nose by critics, which were brutal. And then we have Bradley Cooper, and then you think of Lady Gaga, and there are all these examples of people with these really strong noses. If you're watching The Crown, there's Princess Diana. And so there are these great strong nose moments. And then simultaneously, it's a time of the rhinoplasty. The nose job surgeries are up significantly. And then the newer version of these nose treatments are injectable fillers that are being used to straighten out the nose or make it look like there isn't a bump. So you'll see that everywhere on TikTok. So are all noses good noses? Like, is there any prevailing trend or where do we find ourselves with regards to the aesthetic? Well, there used to be a kind of a taste for noses that was very much dictated by technique. So it was always like a button nose or a ski jump nose or a pinch nose. That was what doctors did for their nose jobs. But now there's a much more allowance for personality and identity and a nose that fits the face. And so right now, really the nose jobs are almost imperceptible, which kind of makes you wonder why I do them, but they really are suited to the individual face. So that's partly because of technique and doctors are able to do things that they weren't able to do before. And also because people are more accepting of a natural look. Well, noses have always been so characteristic, right? And I think between Lady Gaga and our friend Christina Grasso, like we're seeing a lot of interesting people really embrace that as a key tenet of their personality. Right, right, right. And I think that a lot of people go through that moment of particularly, I think when they're sort of in their teens and late teens is I want to get a nose job. I hate my nose. I hate my profile. And then there's a moment that switches and they realize that, oh, wait, this is what makes me me. And Christina Grasso has a strong presence on Instagram and TikTok. And she did a video celebrating all those strong noses, including her own. And it was Lady Gaga and Angelica Houston and Florence Welsh and Princess Diana and so on, Sofia Coppola and everyone in profile. And it got two million views. So there's something resonating here. I think people want that reassurance that their own nose is quite attractive and acceptable. Linda, can I ask a question? 
Please do, Michael. <laughs> it occurs to me, I can't really think of a guy I know who's had a nose job. Am I like right in thinking that this is primarily something that women do? I mean, I think that the numbers are, they're more women who do it than men, but I would talk to plastic surgeons in LA, Beverly Hills and Santa Monica, and they said, it's really common and it's not just women. And they said that any man who's an actor has probably had a nose job. I mean, and we can probably name the exceptions on one hand. Can we think of any of them? I can't right now, but... Maybe it's probably so subtle that you can't see it or they've had it done differently. But I guess that's a point of your story also, because lately these techniques are less invasive and a little less noticeable, right? Yeah. There's this leading rhinoplasty doctor. He's a plastic surgeon, but he specializes in rhinoplasties. And his name is Raj Kanodia. And he's the guy that everybody goes to in LA. And he has all kinds of famous clients. And it's funny because if you go to his Instagram, he's photographed looking very chummy with a lot of people. And you're like, hmm, what's going on there? But Khloe Kardashian is one of the people who has thanked him for his wonderful work on her. So we know that the Kardashian family has been very involved in plastic surgery. Big promoters. Well, look, it turns out you don't actually have to go under the knife to get a new nose. We're hearing a lot about this non-surgical nose job with these injections that are being used to change the shape of the nose. What do we need to know about that? So you see this all over TikTok and they're dermatologists or plastic surgeons. And sometimes it can be even a facialist if they have a weekend training and they're injecting injectable fillers, the kind of things that are usually used in the lips or in the on the lines on the face to fill them. They're using those along the nose to fill in the area above a bump and below a bump give the optical illusion of a straight nose. And it can last from nine months to a year and maybe even longer. And that looks great on certain people under certain circumstances, but there are a lot of issues. And some of it is you're adding filler. And if you want your nose to be smaller, adding filler is not the way to make it smaller because it fills it. So it can create an optical illusion, but it can also just make your nose look straight and very big. So you've got to make sure that you're the right candidate for it. And then you have to make sure you go to a, the right expert to do it. And because these things are easily done with a very minimum amount of training, there are a lot of people who are doing these things that are not qualified to do it and their risks. So some of the risks include necrosis. So if you pump some filler into an artery, you can get skin death in that territory, which is not exactly a great look. And then even worse, because the nose is so close to the eyes, you're putting an injectable filler in the bridge of the nose and it can migrate into the eyes and cause blindness. So great, you've got a nice straight nose and you can't see anything. So you've got to be really careful and go to the right doctors because the right doctors will do just little tiny droplets and not pump a whole bunch in there and then put you at risk. Well, that's cheery. Thanks so much, Linda. <laughs> don't go blind. Good. Great. Yay. Don't go blind. Or you can use makeup. And we all know that contour in the world of makeup has been a huge thing in the past five or 10 years. And I talked to Mariah Carey's makeup artist. They were on tour for her Merry Christmas to All or whatever it's called tour in Ohio. And he was about to run to her dressing room to put contour on her nose, among other things. And he has a whole technique of a way of applying a little bit of light makeup and a little bit of dark makeup to make the nose look straighter. And he does it on himself every day. But there are many easier ways to go about doing this than risking blindness. Thank God. Linda, we're working on the next issue of Airmail Look, which is coming out January 5th. Mark your calendars. But as we're thinking about New Year's, new beauty resolutions, is there anything that's top of mind for you? Well, I have went to a detox spa in Spain. And I did that over Thanksgiving because don't you really want to have tofu and 
roasted leeks for your Thanksgiving dinner or perhaps a miso. So I missed Thanksgiving, but I went there and really kind of felt great. It's called Shaw Wellness. It was really thorough. I've never had more tests done on my life. Looked at my arteries and everything else. And then all kinds of treatments. And so I think that's really interesting. I think that this whole longevity world is moving into the spa land. So it's a lot more legitimate and, well, some of it might be crazy, but it's a lot more legitimate for the most part and a lot less fluffing around in your slippers, getting a mud mask. So that was great. I think people are thinking about giving up alcohol, Ashley. Maybe. They've written about that. Perhaps. More on that soon. That might be you. Is Ashley sober curious? Michael's like, I'm pretty sure she was just in my apartment three days ago having a glass of wine. Maybe. Okay. But that was because Brooke offered it to me. You know, I can't turn down Brooke. So you're sober curious, not sober. Yeah, exactly. Sober curious. It just means a step in the right direction, Michael. Practice makes progress. Well, dear, you can put that on our pillow. Stories about that. We have a lot of delicious and enlightening stories that will start your year in a very fresh way in look in January. More on that soon. Linda, thank you so much. Keep your nose clean. Thank you both. It's great to see you. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Linda. Michael, how do you feel about your nose? <laughs> I like it just fine. I think it's a little crooked, but I feel everyone's face is like a Picasso painting. Everything's a little off center. But how about you? For many years, I thought there was a lot of room for improvement with my nose. But after reading Linda's story, I think I might just leave it alone. Why not? I should learn to love myself more, Michael. Your nose is perfect. Come on. I don't even want to hear this. I mean, who knows? I could be a totally different person with a little ski jump on there. (laughs) One could. Yes, one could. Well, Michael, it wouldn't be the holiday season without a short and bizarre crime story out of France that involves the worlds of cinema and a blazing inferno of several varieties, actually. John von Seven, a Paris-based writer and a frequent contributor to Airmail, is here to talk to us. He's also the author of Miss Your Mediocre, which is a very funny book. But there's nothing mediocre about John. Welcome. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is a really weird story and it kind of has it all. Lost films, the art of restoration and manslaughter. So the guy at the center of this story is a film restorer and a producer named Serge Bromberg. Who was he or who is he? Well, yeah, he's a film producer. He's been in the business for about 40 years. Documentarian, film producer, but mostly he's an expert also in film preservation. And for the last 40 years, he's been scouring the globe trying to find lost film. And he's restored a lot of masterpieces, some done by Chaplin, some Buster Keaton, George Melius. He's found films dating back to the Lumiere brothers when film was first created. And he's always said that 70% of films have disappeared. But aside from being a film producer, he doesn't come over as that in the press. He comes over more as like a film nerd, like completely obsessed with finding these lost films. And unfortunately, tragically, it seems like this obsession is kind of led to a horrible incident three years ago in Paris. Okay, as you note in your story, he's sort of the Indiana Jones of film. Yeah. He's not just restoring these films, but he's trying to sort of find them and save them and and preserve them, which means he puts them in storage, which leads to his problems, right? Exactly, exactly. So three years ago, August of 2020, there's a horrible fire that breaks out in Vincennes, which is a suburb east of Paris. Unfortunately, or tragically, two people die. Fire investigators eventually point to Bromberg, who was storing all these film canisters in a warehouse at the bottom of the building. So there's a trial. Bromberg is charged, convicted, and sentenced for involuntary manslaughter. Part of the prosecution was like he knew the risks. 
And the risks being this film is very unstable and it can combust, right? Exactly. Exactly. When I was writing the piece, I did a little research. I didn't know this. Up until the 1950s, a lot of the old films, silent films, were done with something called cellulose nitrate, which is very, very flammable. After the 50s, it kind of turned to acetate and it was less flammable or not flammable at all. And so a lot of these films, I think, which were stored in this Van Sen warehouse were the silent films that Bromberg was restoring, which were very flammable. And when there was a Kenicula heat wave in August, they went up. So from the get-go, Bromberg was very remorseful, very contrite. Even during the trial, he said, I'm the one who's responsible. I wish this never happened. And the prosecution were at two different angles. They were like, well, you knew the risk and you took them anyway. And secondly, we're not really sure you are that remorseful. John, as I was reading your story, it struck me that this is a guy who might believe more in the world of films and cinema and prefers to live there and is remarkably divorced from reality. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, there is a very obsessional quality to this guy. I think what made headlines in France was that Bromberg had won an Oscar. Well, he had won a César, which is the French equivalent of an Oscar, for Best Documentary in 2009. And that's where my story kind of got very interesting because the documentary was based on film by a guy named Henri-Georges Clouseau. Now, Henri-Georges Clouseau might not be a household name in the U.S. It was a big deal in France in the 60s. And he had two big films back to back in the early 60s, one called Le Diabolique, starring Simone Signoret, which was a big hit. And then he had something called Wages of Fear, which a lot of people call the French 60s version of Speed. So after these two successes, Clouseau got a Hollywood budget. He got two big stars signed on to do his film, a guy named Serge Reggiani and Romy Schneider. But from the get-go, it seemed as if the film was cursed. Weeks into the film, they had location problems, technical problems. There were disputes on set. Reggiani ended up bailing from the film, citing depression. Clouseau had a heart attack during the shooting. So the film was abandoned and it kind of just sat there, all the takes, all the rushes, some of the scenes that they had already shot, and it just sat there in a film canister until Serge Bromberg shows up. And Serge Bromberg then takes all of what he could find, because he is this kind of obsessional film nerd, and kind of cobbles together a sort of Frankenstein version of what Clouseau wanted to do. And he called it Inferno. And the movie is kind of a weird hodgepodge of outtakes and rushes, and it won him the César, and it won him notoriety. And because of this, he probably had a lot more films sent to him because he would always say, please send me your old films. And a lot of those films that probably came because of this notoriety were stored in the Van Sen warehouse that went up in smoke. So yeah, so I think what I really like are like these kind of notions of haunted films, kind of like cursed films. Have you guys heard about Terry Gilliam's documentary? It's called Lost in La Mancha about his efforts to do Don Quixote. And how Don Quixote, the adaptation of Don Quixote, is completely cursed. And every adaptation always ends in misery and never gets made. And then there was the film or the adaptation of the great book, Confederacy of Dunces. And there's been several attempts to adapt the film. And it's never come together for various reasons. I think the last time they were about to shoot a week before the shoot in Hurricane Katrina. And now we have Inferno, which is kind of the French version. It was crazy. After Uzo stopped the film, he never made another film. And Romy Schneider... The star eventually committed suicide. And now you have the guy who finds this film and makes a documentary about it. And now he's sitting in prison for involuntary manslaughter. Kind of creepy. It is creepy. I mean, it's amazing, too, that this film can be so haunted and toxic so many decades after it was even made. Yeah. You can go on YouTube and see kind of like the trailers that were made. It's a very kind of like morbid, kind of hallucinatory, kind of trippy film. 
which was very avant-garde for the time. I think it was shot in 63. Cluzo, I think, was very influenced by Fellini's at Eight and a Half that had come out the year before. And I think he wanted to do something very similar like that, but even more avant-garde and kind of got the best of him. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much, John. And wishing you guys all happy holidays in Paris. Oh, well, you too. Joyeux Noël, everybody. <laughs> Bye, John. Thank you, John. Take care. Okay, Michael, are you going to watch Inferno this weekend? Uh... Yeah, I'm going to look for it if I can find it. But I always love Romy Schneider. So if I can find her in a film, why not? She's so great. Okay, Michael, I think we're done with death, at least for this episode. Well, we're not really done with death because we have Josh Karp. Got the story of The Long Goodbye, one of the great film noir classics, not made in the 40s, but made in the 70s, starring Elliot Gould and directed by Robert Altman, the rebellious film director of the 70s. And it's a fascinating story. Yeah, we've had a lot of Elliot Gould. He was in the Barbra Streisand memoir, What's Not to Love. Josh is the author of A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, How Doug, Kenny, and National Lampoon Changed Comedy Forever, and Orson Welles' last movie, The Making of the Other Side of the Wind. This guy knows movies way better than we do, Michael. We need him on here now. Welcome, Josh. Welcome, Josh. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, let's go. Curiously, I watched this movie earlier this year. I hadn't seen it in a long time. And Josh, I'm excited to talk about it with you because I've always thought this movie is you identify in your story, the first neo-noir. So take us back. It's almost a straight line from this to Chinatown and other things. But take us back to what Robert Altman's doing in 1973 with Elliot Gould, curiously coming off his relationship probably with Barbara Streisand. But how did they make this movie The Long Goodbye in 1973? It was interesting. They were both kind of in a weird place in their careers. They had made MASH together. Gould had this, was kind of achieved this moment where he was like totally like the man of the zeitgeist at the time, right? I mean, he had several movies. We had Bobby Carroll, Todd Nallis, and MASH, and all of a sudden, Elliot Gould was like on the cover of Time Magazine and was like the movie star of the day. And Altman had made MASH, but then what happened was they both kind of had fell on weird times, I would say. Gould, was in an Ingmar Bergman movie called The Wish, which was like kind of wild. He was picked among like every big leading man wanted to play the role and he got this part. But then he produced and starred in a movie called A Glimpse of Tiger. And he kind of fell apart on the set and the movie rap like just fell apart after like a week or two of shooting or something like that. And all of a sudden he was like dead in Hollywood. That classic story of you make one mistake and you fall apart. And Altman had made McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which was a disappointment. So they were both kind of in this weird space. And they came together to work on this movie. And obviously, Elliot Gould is not the first guy you think of for Philip Marlowe. But he had always wanted to play Marlowe and was a big Bogart fan, was in this weird position of competing with Bogart. So the two of them kind of came together. Gould found the script. It was originally supposed to be made by Peter Bogdanovich with either Lee Marvin or Robert Mitchum, but Bogdanovich dropped. Altman got the project, and there we go. Yeah, as you know, I mean, Philip Marlowe is one of the great characters in American literature, thanks to Raymond Chandler. How do you explain this movie to people where you see Elliot Gould? I mean, he's almost like a man out of time. And what was their thinking behind how they set this movie up? Sure. You're shooting a movie that came out in 73, so you're shooting a movie that was made in like 71, 72. So this is really kind of the end of the peak of the hippie world. And it's still the 60s, essentially. And they decided to play Gould as if he was someone from a completely different time, as if he was someone from 1953. So everybody is smoking pot. Gould lives next door to these women who are like kind of nudists in this apartment building. And he is dressed like your classic film noir 
detective. He's wearing a black suit with a solid tie and a white shirt. And he's driving a really cool car from 1948. Yes, as you put it, he is a man out of time. So they kind of shot this as if he was, I referred to him as Rip Van Marlowe. He's a guy who fell asleep in 1953 and woke up in a completely different world. Josh, why do you think this movie still resonates, especially at this particular moment that we find ourselves in? First of all, I think obviously Altman films are kind of a weird group of films. He was incredibly iconoclastic and really did his own thing. He went against the grain so much in his career. And it's like the kind of film Quentin Tarantino loves, right? It's a unique example of a film that would never in a million years be made today. And that's got this incredible performance by Gould, who Alban was very improvisational. So Gould kind of improvised a lot of his responses and his dialogue in the film. And I think it resonates today just because it's a Hollywood film that just never anybody would dream of making today. It's not a Marvel film. It's like trying to think of another movie with somebody who's kind of fallen off as a movie star who was almost like the wrestler with Mickey Blair. It also was almost DOA. It almost never even got to an audience, really, right? Right, yeah. Charles Champlin from Los Angeles Times was just horrified at the idea of Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe. He's not my Marlowe. He's not your Marlowe. This is a ridiculous bit of casting. Pauline Kael really liked the movie, said it was the greatest film that had never had an opening in New York because it did not open in New York it originally. And Roger Ebert loved it. And it was really kind of became rediscovered later by it's a little bit of a cult film. People who are like real film nerds really kind of always loved it. While it was not a huge success at the time, it's something that over time has taken on this importance because it was the first neo-noir. It was before Chinatown and it was kind of the first really new take on film noir before there was kind of this mid-70s return to the noir. Josh Altman and Gould discussed the idea of doing another Marlowe film, but Altman died in 2006. Where does that project or that idea for a project stand now? Well, Gould owns, he, he bought the rights to another Marlowe story from Chandler Estate, and he has talked on and off. I mean, he's 84 years old now, so I don't know about 84-year-old Philip Marlowe. One of the things that Gould added to the actual film was his character had this kind of almost like Big Lebowski dude abides. His line was, it's okay with me. When he goes through the whole movie saying, it's okay with me, it's okay with me. And he's very passive until the end of the film. And he bought the rights for a buck from the Chandler estate. And he still has dreams of making a film called It's Always Now, which is a very Chandler-esque title. Josh, my last question to you. The poster for this film is an image I've never really been able to square. It's Ellie Gould in his suit walking out of the Pacific Ocean. Do you know how that came to be, the poster? I don't. I think the idea was to have Gould, obviously dressed as Marlowe, but it was about L.A. at the time. And I'm sure that they probably figured that was about it. It's not Hollywood, but it's a kind of Californian image as you could possibly come up with is the ocean. And then you've got you this guy, again, this man out of time, walking down the beach, walking out of the water in his black suit with his dark tie and his white shirt. Yeah, I always wondered if he's sort of like a castaway shipwrecked, sort of like climbing, crawling to shore, but trying to survive. Right. Yeah. No, there's the scene where I think Sterling Hayden runs out into the ocean. So I'm sure that was probably some of the inspiration for it. Sterling Hayden gives an amazing performance as 
an alcoholic novelist in the film and is like really one of his great right next to Dr. Strangelove and the Sterling Hayden canon, as it were. Well, Josh, thank you so much for this insight into this beautiful movie. And yet one more thing, Michael, that you and I should be watching over the holiday break. Exactly. 50th anniversary. Celebrate it. Thanks, Josh. Josh, thanks so much, man. And I look forward to your next story. Take care. Thanks for having me on, guys. Bye. Love that guy. I feel like he should just do the recommended section of this podcast every week. Like he's always watching interesting things. Oh, you are too. You're watching, seeing, reading. Yeah, from time to time. It is the weekend. Oh, it is. Okay. Have we talked about Slow Horses? Only to say that it's back. So have you watched it? Yeah, it's pretty great, I have to say. Also that Mick Jagger song, man. This guy is at the height of his powers yet again, apparently. You know how he wrote that song? Because he was such a fan of the books. Really? Yeah. And when they said they were making, like, creators went to him, like, we know you. Like, he's like, sure, I'll write the song. Wow. Passion for literature brings out the best in all of us. Exactly. Well, I'm loving that. I'm deeply immersed. And then I've been watching Yellowstone season two. I'm a little bit behind on that, but I can't help it. I love Yellowstone. I relate deeply to the June Diane Raphael character. Michael, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? I do, actually. It's a film that won the top prize at Cannes this year called Anatomy of a Fall. I love this movie. It's flat out great. It stars Sandra Huller as a writer trying to prove her innocence after her husband has died. And the only person who can stand in her defense, as it is, is her sight-impaired young son. This is a riveting courtroom drama that keeps you guessing till the very end. And she gives a knockout performance. I'm sure she's going to get nominated. It's just terrific. Spellbinding. Like I say, keeps you guessing. It's got to be one of the best movies of the year. It's called Anatomy of a Fall, and it is in theaters now. Well, sounds great, Michael. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We can't wait to see you again next week. Happy holidays. Happy time off work. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Just leave some cookies out for Santa. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.